0: My favorite things to do on Sunday mornings, but especially this Easter Sunday morning, this is where I live at 40th and baseline, I get to hop on I-10 and head this way, coming up towards 51, and about the Jefferson Washington exit as I'm coming north, like it was this morning, like it is many Sunday mornings, 5:45, six o'clock, as sun was coming up. Over the superstitions. What an unbelievable sight! See the city to your left. You normally, when I come to come to the office, I usually don't get to pay attention to those kind of things because there's too many cars. (laughs) But on Sunday mornings, there's not so many. Just to see His Shekinah glory, the glory that's seen in creation, is pretty awesome. But on this Sunday morning. Resurrection Sunday, it has a special meaning. As that sun arose, he's not here. He is risen. I appreciate every day. man. I I really do. I I don't think I tell the Lord enough. I've heard this spoken word just recently saying, I I don't have the words. My, my, My lungs cannot express how much I am thankful. For what God's done for me. I can't find the words. I don't have words to say it. I don't think they exist. But I do the best I can. But every day's a celebration. 24 years old. I don't think anybody anticipated me getting to be 57, to be honest with you. <laughs> I didn't. First it seemed really old and... Still does. But with an alcohol problem, a depression problem, on the verge of committing suicide, minutes away, yeah, I I probably shouldn't be here today. Of all the times I got behind that wheel, out of my dysfunction and out of my arrogance and out of my hubris, stepping behind that wheel knowing I cared about no one else in the neighborhood. No one else that I would face that night. Out of my arrogance, I drove multiple, 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 multiple times. But I was lost. I was guessing about life. I was just guessing what I was doing was going to work. I was just guessing. In a crowd this size, I have a sense today... Some of you have come today and if you were honest, if you were honest about this whole thing about life, you're guessing. You're just guessing. But here's the problem with guessing. Most of the time we don't know until the end whether we guessed right or wrong. That's the problem with that. If you're guessing they way, that way right now, that's what's leading your life. That's what's leading your family's life. It's what's leading your if you're, if you're married. And it's all right to guess on food. You go to a certain place and, hey, I am guess I'm going to try this tonight. And you go, that wasn't a very good idea. Or, or some of you guessed on your March, March Madness brackets. How many of you guessed on that? Jan and Tori, I think, finished first and second in our family bracket. And I can guarantee you they did not do any research on that. I can promise you that. Coke and Heath and I, I think, were the three that finished last, and we all did research on it, okay? So you're guessing, right? You're just guessing. But you know, at the end of the day, it really didn't cost us much. We didn't even put any money on it. There'll be another champion next year. You could even guess on buying a car or even a house and get it wrong and recover. But what about your spouse, if that's where the Lord's leading you? Let's go to another step. What about the whole idea of God? Are you willing to say, I'm willing to gamble on this guess, that it's not all true? Partially true, maybe. I'm just going to hedge my bets. Because you're told when you're investing in something, especially if you're investing for retirement, whatever it is, you're told to diversify, right? Let's put it in a lot of different places. Just in case one of them fails, the other might come through and offset that loss. But we're guessing. Over the last 50 years, we've watched watched a culture, especially from the 1960s till now, make a significant change. And it's a significant change when it comes to finishing things. I think the culture before us had a lot more grit than we do. A lot more perseverance, a lot more endurance. Scripture tells us to, to finish strong, to stay the course. And culture seems to overwhelmingly tell us either don't commit or don't overstate your commitment, especially with social media or you're invited to something. You want to you make sure other options, better options don't come up later on, so you just don't commit. We see it in marriages, though, don't we? We see it in families. We see it in friendships. It's only so far you'll commit to. The problem with that is When you're not all in. When you're not sure if you're all in in your marriage. It causes insecurity and anxiety. It causes insecurity and anxiety in your children. When they don't know if your marriage is all in. It causes insecurity and anxiety in your children when they're not sure you're all in on this faith thing. You dabble with it a little bit. You show up here and there. We talk about the anxiety and insecurity in our culture. We talked about that during our Shadows and Light series, Man Alive. One of the reasons is because people are so insecure. They're guessing. They're guessing. But then you encounter Jesus. <laughs> then you encounter Jesus. Then all of a sudden, all the guessing gets cleared up. All of a sudden, you begin to look and go, wow, okay, I think I found the answer. I no longer have to guess. But having an encounter with Jesus is important. But it's not near as important as what you do after you have the encounter. Well, I had an encounter with him at 16, 17 years old, believe me. And for the next decade, I like to drink myself to death. It's what you do after the encounter that matters. Mark chapter 15. We're going to read about a man who had an encounter with Jesus. Mark 15, 16 through 26. I'm going to read a story that many of us have heard over and over. If you've been in church all your life, it's the story of Simon of Cyrene. And many of us know that he was forced to carry the cross of Jesus. Three of the Gospels talk about it. Mark gives a different viewpoint on it, and I want you to listen for it. Well, I'm not going to read all three of them, but he he mentions in here, he mentions... Simon's sons, and I want you to just make a note of it. We'll come back to it later in the message, but here we go. And the soldiers led him into the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. They clothed him in a purple cloak to salute him. Hell, king of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him, led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them, and decided what each should take. It was at the third hour. When they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, King of the Jews. The distance from Pontius Pilate's palace, say that real quick ten times. The distance from Pontius Pilate's palace to Golgotha was about a thousand to 2,000 feet. And they may have taken a longer route. We don't know for sure. But that's about how far it was. The way of suffering. The cross itself, if it had the post that stood up and down, if, if, if it included all of it, weighed about 300 pounds. The beam... That we know about weighed about 75 to 125 pounds, and, and most people believe that's what was actually being carried. Because to carry 300 pounds that far might have been, it's hard enough, 75 to 100, obviously. But Jesus gave out, didn't he? And then there's a man named Simon coming in from the countryside. Uh, he's coming from North Africa, is where he's from. Uh, you know, and so he's walking along, and there's a great chance he didn't even know, because there's people coming from all over for Passover, and they're yelling, crucify him, crucify him. He's going along, probably minding his own business. Possibly have never, he's never heard of Jesus at this point, possibly. And the Roman centurion says, hey, you, come here. Centurions could do that to Jewish citizens. They had the right to be able to call someone out. What's interesting about the word compelled is the same one uh, that, that's found in, I think it's Mark 15. No, it's not Mark 15. Mark uh, 5, it says, or Matthew 5, it says, if a man is compelled to go one mile, they should go two. And what I love about this term compelled here. It's from the Latin word that is taken from a Persian word, which means pressed into service of a king. Little did Simon know, little did he know in that moment, little did he know in all the circumstances that were surrounding him, little did he know that that moment was going to change his life forever. What's going on in your life right now, friend? What are the circumstances that are circling your life right now? Luke twenty-three, twenty-six through thirty-three, I want to read this for you because I think it'll be important. I think about it now. Simon now is under go ahead and put that picture back up if you would. Now, Simon. Simon now is under the cross. Now, we don't know if it's the full cross. We don't know if it's the beam just itself. But now he's underneath this. He's now with Jesus. He's now trying to help him carry this cross. And this is the words he hears, and it's recorded in, in Luke. It says, the Soldiers led him away. They see Simon f- from Cyrene, who was on his way from the country, and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large number of people followed, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem... Do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you say, Blessed are the children, women, the wounds that will never bore, the wounds that never bore, and the breasts that never nurse, then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us, for if the people do these things when the tree is green, when Jesus is standing in front of them, what will happen when it's dry? Two other men, both criminals, were also let out to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. The question might be, did Jesus even say anything to Simon? Well, we don't know, do we? but we do know this. He was saying things to other people, and Simon was hearing it. He's hearing these prayers. He's speaking out to these women and to those around them. I don't be praying for me. You need to be praying for yourself. Then they get to Golgotha. Then they get to the place called the skull. Simon would have knelt down. It would had the cross taken off his back. And the cross would have been laid down, the main beam. Put on the stipe. And they would have nailed Jesus to the cross. I don't think Simon ran that day. We don't know. I have a feeling Simon stayed for all of it. Simon, Simon had never met a man like this. He'd never encountered someone like this. But on that day, he came face to face with him. How does that change a man? So close to Christ, yet so far away from Christ. So close to the cross, but yet so far away from the cross. You're having an encounter, and it seems close, but it seems so far away. You're right next to him, but you're still far away. The deal is not that you had an encounter with Jesus. It's what happens after the encounter. We're no longer having to guess. At that point, we're able to say, look what's at stake here. We're able to get a clearer vision of what actually is at stake in that moment. You sense it in your spirit. You sense it in your soul. You know what's at stake. You know your family's at stake. You know your marriage is at stake. You know your legacy is at stake, not your destiny, your legacy. Many of you try to chase after your destiny at expense of your legacy. You're so focused on your destiny... Whatever that is, whatever you've dreamed up, that you're costing yourself your legacy. If you'll chase after your legacy, everything else will take care because you may die tomorrow. But what's your legacy? Really, if you died tomorrow, what would they say at your funeral? One of the things we're doing in Uncommon right now in our training and those who will be in, they're going to have to write their obituary. It's a really fun thing to do. But actually, it really is. Because you have a say-so in what people say about you at the end. Whether you're 18, whether you're 25, whether you're 75, you get a chance to write that obituary. How did Simon bear that cross? How do we bear the cross like Simon? Maybe the bigger question. There are those times in our life where we come to that intersection of things, whatever that may be for you, where you're not going to operate out of your expertise. You're not going to operate out of your capability. You're going to operate by by putting down everything before Jesus and take up your cross and follow him. It's going to cost you pain. It's going to be suffering. It's going to be brokenness. It's going to be all those things. It's in those moments that we begin to take up our cross and follow him. Everything you've held on to, a piece at a time, he begins to put his thumb on it. He begins to reveal it. What was okay at one time is no longer okay. And we go, I can't do this without you. Jesus says, he said, that's right. Lay it down and take up your cross and follow me. Lay it down. We're going to feel the pain. And what's so unfortunate is, so many of us, when we get to that point, we ask ourselves, well, what's it going to cost me? My question is, what's it going to cost me if you don't do it? There's still always both questions there, right? The legacy you're leaving, the decisions you're making right now is costing something either way. Some of you are a part of and have started a great story, or some of you are stopping a great story because you're not willing to go through carrying your cross, not willing to go through the brokenness. You're not willing to drop that thing on your shoulders and say, Jesus, I will follow you. I'm going to walk in because it said he followed Jesus. He put the cross on his shoulders, and he followed in Jesus' footsteps. It's what he did. Many of you have seen the statistic, the Barna study, and I've shown multiple times here, Tremendous concern inside the church. 15,000 Americans were asked about faith. And Barna broke it down in the, our, right, our percentages. Of people who go confess and sins, number four, confess sins and ask Jesus Christ to be their Savior, about 9%. Concerned about the implications of personal sin, 39%. Commitment to faith activities, 24 cents, and that 24%. And that's most of the church in America. But look what happens at number seven. If I could ride out beside it today, it is taking up your cross and following him. But look what happens there people back up, they back up, they've encountered Jesus. Maybe even come face-to-face with Jesus. But it's not coming face-to-face with Jesus that matters. It's what you do after you come face-to-face with him that matters.